you know, within land, I feel like a lot of people will say all of the same things up. Land is always going to appreciate in value. Real estate always goes up in value. And that's the thing is if they bought it as a marketing gimmick, it's lost so much value. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. Guys, we are back today. Mason McDonald with RM Golden, Dan Havercaw's Front Range Land. And a topic that Mason and I really wanted to hit on is some of the basics of land that aren't taught or talked about. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've run into, you know, alleged land investors who don't know what a plat map is or anything about utilities or anything that the end user is going to want to know. And so some of that stuff is what we're going to talk through today. But Mason, how's it going? Dan, it is going great. Uh, this will be a fun one because I think just like with anything in business and just like with any asset class within real estate, it is, it is as simple or complex as you're going to make it. But man, you have to know the basics. And with land, there's a good amount of basics. Uh, you know, I think one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Mark Twain, which is, by land, they're not making more of it. But maybe there's some complexities with that, and I'm excited to dive into a lot of the stuff that I think a lot of people just don't know about land. So I think we should get right into it. You already talked about um, a couple things, and I think this show will be a fun, a fun one to do of just asking questions to the other person as we bring up other stuff. And so, Dan, what's a plat map? Great question. So a plat map is the overarching map that shows all of the divisions individual lots, the roads, easements within the lots, the boundaries, right? It, it is the overarching map that shows how the land is divided up. And so it's a it's a end goal for a developer in that a developer is, is often, at least speaking to the horizontal, somebody who takes a piece of raw land and turns it into a subdivision or a, a finished subdivision. And so the plat map is what they work with the civil engineers and architects, and then ultimately the city or county to create and record, which shows, okay, we took this 100-acre tract and turned it into, you know, 50 lots of residential, 30 of commercial, so on and so forth. Here are the streets, roads, utilities, easements. It is the overarching map that shows the lay of the land. So that's different than a parcel. Yes, right. The parcel, the plat map shows you all of the individual parcels in that given area, right? I love it. I love it. And something that you're going to see a lot, you know, if you're getting in the land space is what we call in most counties that I worked in, it's the APN or the assessor's parcel number. The county assessor is who is recording all of these plat maps and dividing up and showing all of these individual parcel numbers. So, you know, that's something that you're going to need to know in this business as well is a parcel. And that's what we're marketing towards. Uh, in our business is finding people that own individual parcels or multiple parcels of land that maybe at some point, uh, you know, can get replatted and have, you know, show all sorts of different things that are happening, you know, with, with a large subdivide or anything like that. But don't want to get too complex too, too early. So we know what a parcel is and we know what a plat is. Now, land has a lot of different types and a lot of different uses. I can think of about 10 off the top of my head right now. But Dan, why don't you pick a type of land or a zoning of a piece of land that you're familiar with and we'll talk. Sure, about. sure. So, 
you know, you already asked what a plat map is. So let me go down that rabbit hole. Uh, you'll hear me use the word infill all the time. And so I think, or I know the word raw land is misused all of the time. People see just a vacant parcel. There's a piece of vacant raw land. No, no, much of it is not raw. Raw would mean that there are no utilities, no zoning, right? No entitlements, no streets, roads. It's just a piece of, you know, maybe a piece of farmland with no development at all. That is raw land. Whereas infill, when I use the word infill, the implication of that word is that the utilities are in place, right? There's a road, you can access it. The entitlements are there. So you can build whatever the zoning code allows, whether it's single or multi or commercial. Uh, and so I think of infill as being one category of land and it could be residential, commercial, industrial, but it is within an existing subdivision, usually city or, or town where, you know, you go down the street and there's 10 houses and five lots in between them, right? Those are infill lots. So the major implication when I use that word is that it is horizontally developed, which we'll hit on more in a moment, but I'll leave it at that. No, I love it. I love it. So to back up even a little further, we've got zoning, which is going to indicate the type of use that a piece of land typically has. And what you're specifically talking about is land that might have multiple zoning, but you know it could be residential, it could be industrial, it could be commercial, it could be multifamily residential, it could be all that kind of stuff. But we're talking about specifically for the most part is residential and then infill because infill is not necessarily going to be something that's on the county assessor's website, right? It's not going to indicate that. No, no, that's not a type of zoning. That's just a general term terminology in the business implying that it is horizontally developed. Exactly, exactly. So whenever you're dealing with whatever type of zoning, and if you hear that word infill, which is, uh, it's not jargon, but it's jargon, or I guess it is jargon within our industry, of that's going to be something that's ready to get developed. All the utilities are there and everything makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. So recreational land is, it can be a specific type of zoning for land, but you know, regardless of the zoning, I, I look at recreational land as kind of the opposite of infill. Uh, typically there's not going to be utilities anywhere close by, uh, or if they are close, it might be several miles away. And there's, the infrastructure level is typically going to be a dirt road that goes up to the property. Sometimes it's a county maintained road, uh, but for the most part, it's just kind of a dirt dirt road that goes up to the property. So the, what you can do with a recreational piece of land, because there's opportunities to make money in every zoning class that exists. Um, with recreational, typically you're going to get people that are looking for a place to ride dirt bikes and shoot their guns and uh, potentially build but it's going to be an off-grid cabin where I own some land that we've been exploring for a while, putting an off-grid cabin on. And what that means is you put in, uh, you can maybe dig a well, but most likely you're going to use a cistern or a water holding tank. Uh, your source of power is typically going to be solar. Uh, you can put in a septic tank where you can use a composting toilet. It's really truly for the use of recreational land. But that right there, you know, once again, with any of these pieces of land, you hear recreational and you have to be careful and look around to make sure that uh, you're not over assessing or under assessing the value of the property because it can be zoned one way, um, but the actual use can be something else. I know in certain counties in, in the state where it's zoned recreational, but there's um, it's considered an infill lot. 
uh, where you have utilities running up to it and everything like that. Yeah, man. Um, let me just expand on that big picture. Uh, the the overarching th- these are terms. They're not perfect. They're not perfect lines. I, I bought and sold land that's quasi recreational and infill in that there were you know acre squares that you could build a house on, but a lot of people just used them to camp over the weekend, and that was allowable. So these these aren't perfect categories, but they're more just useful uh, categories that apply most of the time because the ultimate goal and use of rec- recreational land is camping or hunting or fishing and then infill is generally development of some sort of you know housing um, and so they're not perfect classifications but they are useful because the seller and buyer is generally very different you need to be aware of that completely agree and I, I think the biggest thing is that typically with this recreational type of land uh, it's going to be more of like a uh, an individual non-commercial use, you know, similar to residential, not necessarily being the buyer, but it's going to be an individual that lives in a house that's going to be on that land or an individual that's playing on the land. So within residential, you're going to see a lot of different things uh, from a zoning perspective, you know, where I, I do what I consider infill lots, where it's in subdivisions, but they're more rural subdivisions. So there's utilities accessible, but typically it's going to cost a little bit more. Dan, talk to us a little bit about uh, the farm and ranch land that's out out there, agricultural land. Okay, Mason, so farm and ranch. Farm and ranch, ag land, it's exactly as the name says. It is raw land that has the potential to be turned into pretty much any other type of land, depending on where it is. And so the best use could potentially be just leasing it to farmers. Maybe it's way out in eastern Colorado nothing's really going on. There's not a lot you can do. Or maybe it's like Banning Lewis Ranch, the giant ranch right east of Colorado Springs that has been taken by some large developers. The horizontal work has been done and now it's getting built out by a lot of the big builders. So farm and ranch is exactly as the name sounds. It is raw. It needs to have the development process done to really do anything beyond just leasing it to farmers or storing equipment. Uh, but there's a lot of potential of what you can do with it. And then you also get into water rights, mineral rights, sometimes oil rights, which is a whole other asset class that can be divided and taken separate from the land itself. But I'll pause there. No, I, I think that's great. And I think just like with any piece of land, you know, it's getting you guys familiarized with the jargon that's used in the industry where you can go and you can have land that's zoned for farming or agricultural use, but it's technically an infill lot. You know, for instance, uh, you know, my parents are building in Southern Colorado and all of the land in the neighborhood is zoned agricultural, despite the fact that there's all utilities at the property, but that's more designed that way for tax benefit of there's cows that run through all the properties in the neighborhood and everything like that. And so whenever you're looking at it from an investment perspective, you can look at land as either a non-value-add opportunity to flip, which is something that we do a lot of, or a value-add opportunity to, once again, flip. Where with farming and ranching, and say, just like you're saying, I would say it's a you know, huge parcel just east of Colorado Springs that would be great for development. You've got electricity running along the highway that it's adjacent to. And so you're going to need some infrastructure to obviously improve it into something else, but Say it's a thousand acre parcel. How many end buyers are there for a thousand acre parcel that are going to be utilizing it 
for, you know, a more retail or individual use. And there's just not that many because that would be really, really expensive. But if you as an investor know that, hey, there's a building shortage going on and that there's a huge desire to have a little bit more space, if you could take that thousand acre parcel and put in all the the horizontal development necessary, you can put in the roads, you can put in everything and you can have, you know, um, I don't know, uh, 500 one acre parcels then you can think about how you can do that. And all of these zonings, for the most part, can be changed if you go through all of the approval process. Yes. But now with that being said, uh, I'll, I'll jump right into the next type of land um, that I've encountered that you can't change zoning with, and that these are the type of properties that I recommend you avoid. And we're going to go through a couple different examples, but one of them is open space, where... I purchased a piece of land that was zoned open space, and open space is exactly what you think it is. You go into the nicer neighborhoods, and typically they have some park-like settings that are undisturbed pieces of nature. And what I did not know, and what I found kind of consistently, is that open space land is zoned open space in perpetuity, which means forever. So if you're attempting to get into land space and you send out a bunch of offers or postcards and you accidentally include that type of zoning category within there, just don't even bother. There's almost no way you can make money on it because it's it's not usable. So Dan, what's another type of unusable land yeah. that you can think of from an investment? Yeah. So there was a lot of scams in the 60s and 70s where developers, we'll call them, went to Florida, Colorado, New Mexico, and they took huge tracts of land. And I mean, again, I'm generalizing, so there's different specific events and examples, but let's take Rattlesnake Acres in New Mexico. This is not far from Albuquerque. And this was subdivided on paper, on paper. So the plat was recorded for thousands of lots, but none of the roads were put in, nothing. It's just raw desert land for all intents and purposes, physically speaking. And so the developers of these lots took it and marketed it to cold areas, marketed it to cold areas and sold them the dream of, you know, get out of the cold, come to New Mexico, beautiful here. It's going to be a thriving community. And people in, I think it was the 80s, I don't remember which decade, but this was a lot of money back then, were buying these lots, at, you know, 10, 15 grand. And they were worthless. No roads, no utilities, no community, no access, way, way, way out in the desert, just dry nothingness. And so that one specifically is notorious because they got sued, owed a lot of money. I I think they got uh went to jail too. I, I don't remember all the all the backstory, but point being, there are a lot of useless subdivisions where the paper plat was done and recorded, but the land itself is pretty much worthless and it was sold off. And so I've run into this where we'll mail an area and didn't realize we included some of these and you get a massive response and you think this is great and you realize most of it's worthless. Another example, Colorado City, Colorado. This one's a little different. It's not a blatant scam. There was a a large, not a large, a small portion of the subdivision that was built out. I've built a few houses down there, but then there's a huge portion of it where it never did get built out and there's no streets and roads or there was initially just a, a cut in of a dirt road in the 60s and now you know 60 years later there's almost nothing left it's overgrown and there are all kinds of 
infill, quote unquote, lots over there that were sold to outsiders who didn't know what they were buying. So it's a mix. Some of these aren't just blatantly scams like that Rattlesnake Acres, but they're just sometimes subdivisions that were expected to get built out, but something changed up economically and it never was. Like Lehigh Acres, Florida is a great example of that. That was done, I think, in the 70s. They sold the dream to the Northeasterners. Hey, come down to beautiful Florida in the, in the winter where it's warm. And it, that just sat mostly unused for decades and decades. And now it's getting built out. But um, those are some examples. No, I, I, I think you're hitting on something that, you know, Dan, Dan and I both do coaching and consulting work within the land business. And we have, you know, friends that do it. And there's so many people out there that are teaching what to do. And I think they're teaching... You know, correct me if I'm wrong, basically doing that all over again, where you're taught to go buy these desert squares or these really cheap pieces of land for just like, I mean, ridiculously low prices, absolutely insane prices where some people will just give them away uh, to get rid of them. And then you kind of resell this dream where, you know, this happened in Colorado. This has happened everywhere in Hartzell, Colorado. I think, um, you know, that happened back in the nineties with a, you know, company that, purchased a bunch, subdivided, promised everything, and then nothing happened. And, you know, the same thing happened in Crestone, Colorado. And I think, you know, just looking at it and recognizing that, you know, in vacation destinations, there's going to be a lot of people that live out of state or out of county. But whenever you start seeing like a clear trend of something of where in a subdivision in Crestone, Colorado, in the Bacher Ground uh, neighborhood, so I got a huge response when I got out there. And I've got a few pieces of land out there that haven't sold in the past few months. And I took that gamble on it. However, what I noticed is that almost everyone that owned this land lived in Hawaii or Guam. And I think whenever you start seeing a concentrated area of owners that are out of state or out of county, that can be a red flag for what Dan's talking about with these useless subdivisions. Now, you can find an end buyer for anything at the right price, but you've got to be careful out there because whenever we get excited and see that, you know, a piece of land sold in the nineties for $21,000 and they're willing to give it to me for $4,000, but I can maybe only sell it for $7,000. It's not actually going to be a good deal or anything like that. So I think, you know, within land, I feel like a lot of people will say all of the same things up. Land is always going to appreciate in value. Real estate always goes up in value. And that's the thing is if they bought it as a marketing gimmick, it's lost so much value. But yeah, anything you want to add on useless subdivisions? I know we've been talking about it for a little bit, but I think it's so crucial people understand the difference between a useful and a useless. Yeah, yeah. So the moral is, is there, be careful of pulling up the assessor site, seeing what appears to be a subdivided sub, you know, a subdivision with streets and roads. Make sure that plat exists in reality. It wasn't just recorded and left at that. Uh, another distinction I want to make, I mean, you know, Hartzell, Colorado, as of today, you can actually go park your camper out there and and camp. And many people like to do that. And so that's okay. If you are clear and honest in your advertising about what you can do with that land and people are fine with that. They really just want to go park there on the weekends. Great. But I have seen, you know, using Colorado cities, as an example, people selling some of those lots as if, Hey, you can camp here on the weekends, which is not true. You can't, if the Metro district finds out, they'll find you. So, you know, some of those subdivisions can be ethically bought and sold. You just need to be clear about what you are doing, what you are selling. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's the main point I wanted to make there. No, I, I, I think that's all great. And I, and I think that can 
kind of lead us into another conversation because we can talk about the different types of land and just to like rattle off a few really quickly. You know, we've got residential that we talked about and those could be infill lots or they could not be infill lots quite yet, which is why you have to do appropriate due diligence and see if all of the criteria that Dan's talking about makes sense. Um, you know, if utilities, roads and all that kind of stuff, you've got farm and agricultural land that once again could be developed or it could be completely vacant. You know, that's more of a tax designation rather than, you know, a full, you know, uh, you know, explanation of everything you can do with the property. You've got these residential lots is what we're talking about in these useless subdivisions are technically zoned that way residential, but typically they're going to be used more for the recreational use that we talked about a little bit. You know, a few other ones, we've got commercial, we've got industrial, we've got mining claims and mining rights, which we don't really need to spend too much time on. And, you know, I think one one thing that I'd like this conversation to lead to is land use, because whenever you are attempting to understand what you can use a property for, that will indicate what the actual value is and who the avatar of your buyer is. Now, you and I don't really sell too much ourselves. We have realtors sell it, so we don't exactly maybe know who our end buyer is all the time unless it's just going to be a commercial builder. But how do you determine what you can actually do on a property? How do you go about finding that information? Great question. So that just goes to the zoning code, the zoning code. And so in any market you're in, the county will have a GIS, a property search, usually both, where you can specifically on the GIS, pull up an overlay that shows the zoning of all the lots. And then they have uh, on the uh, uh, county website a list of what all those zoning codes means and what all the uses are for each. And so these can be pretty complex. So I, I recommend just calling in and asking and then learning that way. I think that's a that's a quicker way to do it if, if it's not a really simple explanation of the zoning code, which it usually isn't when you look on their site. Agreed, agreed. And, and I think a few things to look for, you know, is once again, you have to think about what price you're getting whenever you're attempting to purchase a piece of property that you want to get on the sales side. And that's what's going to dictate it, I think, the most is what the actual use is and the cost of development, if there is any associated cost of development that's going to go in with the land. So, you know, think about the area, think about what's going around. And, you know, if you are in proximity to where you're investing, go drive around yeah. and see what other people are doing. If, you know, because the thing is, depending on, you know, if you reference back to our episode talking about defining the avatar of who your seller is, whether it's the sophisticated uh, you know, potentially former developer or investor or someone that was going to build a second vacation home in a nice neighborhood versus the unsophisticated person that got sold on a scam a long time ago. They might tell you whatever you want, which is why you have to confirm, you know, verify and then trust in this business because otherwise you're going to get screwed over. And the easiest way to do it, just like Dan said, just call the planning and zoning department. They should be able to tell you I use a service. They're called Parcel Detectives. They do it all for me because I hate being on the phone. And go drive the neighborhood. You know, if you think that you're going to build a dream home on this property in this unused, you know, useless subdivision, and you look around or you can just hop on Google Maps and look and see and be like, well, no one else has developed on this. You know, the plat maps were recorded in 1979 and in the past, you know, 45 years or whatever that math is, no one's built on it. Don't think that you're going to be the one yeah. that does it. You know, I think that 
you have the opportunity to get, uh, or if you're like me, you can be susceptible to think that you might have found this gold mine and yeah. you didn't. I promise. There's too many people that are uh, investing in land and investing in this space that um, you you you're you're not the new one. To- yeah, and just as a fun aside, uh, when you're looking in the zoning code, you never know what sort of interesting things you might find. I'll never forget looking at the zoning code for Pahrump, Nevada, and I forget the county, but within Pahrump, it's known for one thing, and that's where you would go outside of Vegas to uh, have a good time on the weekends. And so, right in the zoning code, there was a big BR which stood for brothel. So that <laughs> I think is just kind of funny. There we go. Yeah. That I mean, it's the the oldest industry, right? Um, it's been around forever. So that right there at least indicates that there's some historical precedent <laughs> for it, as versus you coming and being a new developer. Yeah. So uh, prompt Nevada for all those uh, looking to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dan, uh, I I think we can kind of you know move towards a little bit more of the technical aspects where I think a lot of people think that you know, and I hit on it, uh, but on the opposite point of say there's a say we're in North Carolina, um, a state that you do a lot of business in, and say that there is a vacant infill residential lot in a subdivision where there's homes all around it, but it hasn't been developed in a long time. Or, well, obviously it's never been developed. What are some of the things that you look for, that you know to look for, that you know that a lot of people wouldn't even think yeah, about? Yeah, great question. Very good leading question here because we'll get into perk tests. So in a lot of the markets I'm in North Carolina, there are water lines at the street, but there are no sewer lines and everybody's on septic. And if you don't know the process, you can really get yourself in trouble. So a couple of the counties I'm in, they do, they call it a site evaluation. All the locals, the builders, the realtors, they just refer to it as a perk test, which is referring to a percolation test, which is simply a way of testing the soil for its ability to allow water to percolate through to see if a septic tank will work. Now, again, you call the county, they're going to say, no, it's not a perk test. It's different. We do a site evaluation, but conceptually, it's the same idea. And in those counties that I'm in in North Carolina, if you fail the perk test, the land is is basically worthless. There are some very expensive solutions to that, but for all intents and purposes, it is worthless because of the, the housing prices aren't nearly high enough to justify what the septic cost would be. So for all intents and purposes, you have a worthless lot if it does not perk. And so if you don't know that, you can really get yourself in trouble. And this varies from place to place. In Pueblo West, Colorado, where I actually have new homes being built, um, again, the locals often call it a perk test, but there is a a septic uh, evaluation that the county does to determine what sort of septic tank you need given the soil. And it's never a yes or no. It's just a sliding spectrum of cost. So down there, this isn't as big of a concern if you know, you're selling a nice lot that an end user wants to put their home on and they really like the lot, they often will close regardless because it's not a yes or no. It's just, it's more expensive. So you have to know what the process is. If your your uh, county does not have water and sewer lines, but people are still building, well, what is the process for getting the permit for both well and septic? Is there anything I need to look out for that might make this land worthless? So important. I, I think it's, so crucial. And I think that's what we want people to understand the most about this of, you know, our, our title of the episode is just basics of land that aren't taught. And some of these points might seem like they 
they aren't landing as much. But it once again, if you're looking at a piece of land, you start with kind of the zoning of what that parcel is. And you see what the land use is. And you can figure all that out. And then you can make sure that everything that we've been talking about, whether it's access to utilities or, you know, past perk testing and anything like that, um, matches up with a consistent cost that the end buyer in that particular subdivision, we're talking about resident mm -hmm. land here, that the end buyer would expect yep. where um, I, I, I can't tell you how many deal killers there have mm -hmm. been that are exactly like Dan was talking about, where those are the people that are going to be most likely to reach back out to any marketing that you have sent out because they know their lot is worthless. Where I helped one of my friends underwrite a deal yesterday where it's in a subdivision where the average or sorry, the median sale price over the past 90 days is about thirty to $32,000. And their lot is zoned residential. You know, it has road access, but the sewer and water lines stopped about 300 feet from it. And so if you're looking on the map, you're like, oh, I've got a great deal. I could get this for five grand. But I want you to guess how much it costs to bring the sewer and water line 300. Oh, a couple hundred grand. There you go. Exactly. It was going to cost in between two and 400 per foot to move yeah. it. So unless you're going to do get all of that land for free that goes along it and then put all of that infrastructure in, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to make money on it if they're only selling for 30,000 yep. each. So you have to do your due diligence. Yeah. What are what are some things we're missing? Because we both miss stuff in our mm -hmm. business. What, what what are some common pitfalls that we're we're not talking about yet? Yeah, you hit on a big one there. You know, some of the markets I'm in, there'll be a street where the water line stops halfway and the sewer line goes all the way. And you don't realize that. So you have to have a really solid due diligence checklist that you don't ever vary from. But, you know, I, I'd say it varies so much from market to market. What we do whenever we go somewhere new is we we check the listings, right? So look at a dozen land listings and whatever it is that everyone's looking for, it's probably mentioned. And so in those markets in North Carolina, there'll be a bunch of listings in those areas that don't have sewer lines and everyone says, you know, pass septic permit on file or, you know, expired, but pass septic permit on file. Uh, because that's what everyone's going to want to know. You know, I, I dealt with the market where it's a mountainous market in Colorado. If you're over a certain grade, can't build. Sorry. And so th there's example after example after example uh, in Florida. If you have turtles on your property, endangered turtles, you're in trouble. And so what I have my guys do when we go into new places is beyond the due diligence sheet that we have and everything we know, you've got to call a few of the local experts and say, hey, you know, Mason, we bought and sold a lot of land. We built a lot of houses, but every market has its nuances, its pitfalls. And we give a couple examples to get them thinking of what we've run into elsewhere. Is there anything like that in this locality that we need to watch out for where it could make the land worthless, non-buildable, really expensive? Uh, anything that comes to mind? If you ask a couple solid realtors that that are selling most of the land, you'll get your answer. That's so smart. That's so smart. And you've got to reach out to the people that are actually in the market that know it because you're you're right, though, as well of looking at some of the listings, you're going to be able to kind of figure out what's going on in the neighborhood where uh, in, in so many neighborhoods out there, the city uh, utilities or county utilities um, haven't made it that far. And if you can find a property that's two or three doors down that's for sale and it's been for sale for 600 mm -hmm. days, it says uh, this property is not buildable because 
there are plans to extend utilities over the next five, 10 or 15 years sometimes. Yep. So you just have to do your due diligence and you have to have a great due diligence checklist to walk through all of these different things. Dan, I think we kind of went through a lot of the common, not necessarily pitfalls, but a lot of the zoning and everything. But what what can we leave everyone with? What's one last thing that we, we can leave everyone One more with? thing is a couple items that builders are often going to ask you for if you're dealing with infill. And so surveys or just the specific plat of that lot. We have a lot in uh, Corrales, New Mexico. And my uh, guy has uh, his real estate license down there. So he's also got it listed. And uh, all the builders have asked, can I see the plat? Can I see the plat? Because they want to see whether or not there's actually access. And there is. But uh, a plat of the specific lot Right. So we talked about the overarching plat map. And then if you zoom in on each lot, it shows the boundaries, the measurements, if there are easements for access or easements for utilities that might make the lot useless. Um, a plat that that that's what a plat is, quite simply. We pretty much already hit on that, but they might also ask for the survey. They might say, Hey, can I have the survey? And when you have a survey done, the surveyor will give you that. So that is often what they're asking for if a builder is asking for that. Now, a physical survey is something I have done every time I have a house built where the guy goes out, he marks the boundaries, uh, he marks, well, the boundaries of the lot, quite simply, and then also in the context of building, he'll mark the boundaries of where the house is going. And one more term we'll define uh, is plot plan. So if you're building a house, right, where's the structure going to sit on the lot given the boundaries versus the size of the lot, or excuse me, the size of the home and the setbacks. And so that is just the lot, like the plat of the lot with the structure sitting on it. Um, and one more important term then is is setbacks. You can't just build up to the edge of the lot, right? You're going to have houses touching each other. If that were the case, there'd be drainage issues. There'd be all kinds of issues. So in Pueblo West, where I build houses, it's five foot on each side, but 15 foot total. And these lots are 80 foot wide most of the time. So this is important because you can get in trouble here if you don't know that there are setbacks or what the setbacks are. Uh, and so just another thing to be aware of, if you're looking at really skinny lots, make sure that a home can actually fit on it because I've seen that too, where there's just random lemons. There's a bunch of normal lots. Then there's one that's half the size and it's worthless because no builder or, or homeowner can put a home there. Uh, so that is what a plot plan is, right? It is uh, the lot, the house on the lot, and then showing that it, it fits given the setbacks and the measurements uh, and just showing how the structure sits on the land. That's so important. All of that is so important because it once again ties back into whatever the intended use of the property is. It doesn't matter if it's a legally designated you know, parcel and it, it exists and everything and the zoning says residential and you know, on the county assessor website says you know, residential buildable lot you have to make sure that it matches up with actual code where I can't even tell you how many neighborhoods because those are the people that are going to be responding mm -hmm. to you. Those are the ones that if we had a count, if we had an easy way to systematize this and track that data, the useless piece, pieces of land, I feel like my response rate is like 90% yeah. whenever I accidentally send those because it will happen all the time of there will be that skinny lot that is zoned as residential that is just a tract of land in a neighborhood that cannot be used for anything. And 
you know, originally it was a drainage easement, but a lot of the times with these neighborhoods that were developed 50, 60 years ago, whenever all of this data was uploaded into the county assessor website, it was not translated perfectly or appropriately. So you have to double check and verify and make sure that, you know, if the goal or the end goal or end use of that property is to build a house on it, you know, are the dimensions of the property appropriate? <laughs> because that when these plat maps were recorded in the 70s, you know, zoning can yeah. change, you know, land use can change. All of this stuff can change. And so those people might have paid $15,000 for that lot that you can't do anything with anymore. So don't buy unusable land. It's not going to be worth it. I think, you know, I, I hate saying no to stuff. And I think the only approach, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, whenever you get one of those unusable pieces of land that, you know, there's obviously going to be setback uh, requirements that are going to be unable to be met uh, because it's too skinny or it's shaped wrong or the slope is too weird. There's still an opportunity to make money on it. And to me, it's selling it to yep. the neighbor. Uh, if you can get it cheap enough, you could probably assign it to the neighborhood or sell it to the neighbor at an extreme discount. But uh, that's a conversation you should have prior to locking anything up to see if the neighbor actually has any interest in it. Because otherwise, you're going to be stuck with a lemon and you're going to be the person that's responding to mail in 70 years with this piece of unusable land that, uh, that, that you can't do anything yep. with it. But I, I, I think that was a, a, a great show. I think there's a lot of useful pieces of information. Um, I think we summarized effectively of, you know, determine the type of property that you want to be utilizing with your investing strategy and make sure that the actual use matches up with the intended use uh, and do that through great due diligence, contacting local experts, con contacting the county and use the jargon that we're using because you know whether you're flipping land or you're developing land or you're attempting to get into land in some capacity know the difference between a parcel and a plat map and uh what residential versus recreational and all these terms that we've been using dan uh this was a ton of fun um i think it's useful and we'll we'll pick it back Sweet. up thanks Mason. And that's it for today's episode of The Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating, and we'll see you in the next episode.